Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Alex Stewart. Hi. Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe. Uh, we're going to be discussing a few different things today. We're going to start with 10 minutes on FIFA's stance. FIFA's new stance in the form of a statement. That's my favourite kind of stance when it's a statement. Uh, FIFA have been responding to the rumours that uh, you know discussions around a new European Super League are revolving around the big clubs by saying that any player involved uh, or any club, uh, sorry, any club or player involved in such competition blah, 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 would not be allowed to participate in a competition organised by FIFA. So they're World Cup and Euros ban, basically, which is quite a big thing. So we'll be talking about that at the beginning. And then the main thrust of the episode is the TIFO Predictions Hour. We've asked you listeners and ourselves to make some predictions long and short term uh, that we will discuss on the podcast today. Things like, uh, I will tell you, I'm not going to preface any of them. Just, it's exciting. It's a a nice and fun episode. Before we get started with part one, though, let me tell you about this this thing that I love. It's called The Athletic. And I believe, Seb, you love it also. I also do love it, yes, Joe. What is it about it that you that you love? Because, you know, we all have people in our lives and uh, family members and we all have hobbies. But there's just something about The Athletic that, uh, you know, eclipses all of those things. And, uh, and I want it more than I want anything else in my life. For me, it's the long form. So this morning, before we started recording, I had a read of Jack Lang's excellent interview with Sandra, who's one of my yeah. favourite Tottenham players of the last mm. sort of... Uh, last few decades um absolutely career didn't quite pan out the way it was supposed to but uh, jack catches yeah. uh, his fondness for his lasting fondness for spurs really nicely and it was a lovely way to start a friday i don't know about you guys but um i, I people can't touch me but a long read like that like a warm hug hey i mean you say people can't touch you you're also not a hugger in real life no i'm a hugger i'm yeah, a big time hugger you're not you're not really i mean you're a you're a pound well, the shoulder I, I don't think we've hugged Seb, but that doesn't mean that I'm That's not a weird, hugger. we've known each other quite a long time now. I don't want to touch you. Uh, <laughs> but if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, then you can avail yourselves of the uh, of the digital warm hug uh, of, of such writing, writing of such authors as uh, Daniel Taylor, David Ornstein, uh, Stu James, Dom Fifefield, lots of exciting people. Um, and uh, also, it's a good thing for me to say to uh, my uh, superiors at work, hey, look, I did a good thing. And maybe that, you know, maybe I'll keep my job for longer. So that's that's the main thing here. <laughs> Dan Sheldon did a long piece with Yannick Vestergaard that also came out today. Uh, oh, Dr. Sheldon, yeah. An exceptional look at how Yannick Vestergaard plays as a centre-back in the Southampton system. Really detailed, a level of tactical exposition that you don't otherwise tend to get. And it's absolutely superb. Um, oh, there you go. It's, I, you know... I, I got as excited about this as I get excited about anything. Wow. Well, that's kind of like what I was saying, but a bit more juicy. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Uh, anyway, for now, I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of FIFA's stance. Okay, let's begin then with uh, the big topic of the week. European Super League uh, is back, apparently. It never really goes away, does it? Um, but this time with a uh, an ironclad statement from uh, none other than FIFA. 
so FIFA, well, this is, I'm going to read now a quote from uh, UEFA's website where the uh, statement was, uh, was also posted. Any club or player involved in such a competition, i.e. the European Super League, would as a consequence not be allowed to participate in any competition organised by FIFA or their respective confederation. The, before we uh, sort of talk about this in more depth, Seb, presumably they mean the World Cup, uh, but they also must mean, if it's uh, any competition uh, in respective confederations, FA Cup, stuff like that? Uh, no, because the um, the FA Cup would um, fall under the Football Association's jurisdiction rather than um, like a, a, a geographical entity like UEFA. So what it would mean is, yes, World Cup, yes, European Championship, and, and yes, Copa America, Africa Cup of Nations, but also... Uh, I'm not sure how relevant this is, but things like the Champions League, the Europa League, the Europa Conference League, stuff like that. Right. Okay. Um, at the moment, so I mean, you know, maybe in, in the future, there's a kind of the, the national associations have something to say too. But at the moment, my understanding is it doesn't cover individual tournaments within specific countries. Right. Okay. I mean, the interesting thing about this is that is this seems to be a sort of a revamped version of uh, of the Super League, or at least a you know slightly different version to what I think most people were expecting. I was reading this morning that there's there has according to the Guardian been a, a document in circulation setting out potential plans for the competition that would replace the Champions League, but not the domestic leagues. So this, I mean, for example, teams that uh, from the Premier League that might feature in a European Super League would theoretically still feature in the Premier League, but also the European Super League. That I'm I'm reading that correctly. Right. Yeah. So what it means is, at the moment, um, quite a few of the midweek match days are dedicated to Champions League, Europa League, you know, continental competition. What this proposal sets out is a uh, a new competition which would take the place of the Champions League for these specific teams. And so they would have twenty teams involved, broken up into two groups of ten. Uh, within those groups, every side would play each other. Uh, home and away so that would be uh, 18 games a season which is pretty hefty and then at the end of that the top four from each group would go into a kind of Champions League style knockout it's basically creating just a big block of predetermined pre-selected European football uh, between teams And, and, and the key issue here and I think this is why most people would concede that the Super League as an idea is is not so super is that the proposal is for 15 permanent members, so 15 clubs who were immune from any any relegation or uh, any threat of non-qualification. And every year there would only be um, a sort of uh, an entry on merit for available for five different teams, which if the sport is to sort of have any pretense of being a meritocracy, I think we can all agree that that isn't a particularly healthy thing. Where's the stakes? Also, you know, close it or keep it open. I mean, yeah. presumably that would mean that, uh, let's say that there were, you know, uh, three of the worst performing teams in the in the champion or the Super League version of the Champions League that year were all teams that were permanent members. The teams that were there on merit, uh, you know, got very very far or even potentially won the competition and then were displaced again the next year. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Well, I, I think the, the long-term aim is to ensure that by being a permanent member and having permanent access to the revenue streams, the teams that enter year on year, the qualifiers, so to speak, in inverted commas, would just not really be able to compete because the 15 permanent members would be operating off a completely different economic plane. So, I mean, the, one, one, one of the things that really troubles me about it and actually makes me quite angry is that nobody really seems to have thought about, beyond, beyond the permanent versus temporary aspect of this, the idea of having 18 games in a midweek league competition is, yeah. 
is a recipe for what I imagine would be quite a lot of dead rubber football joe. So yes, you'd have uh, you'd have a kind of competitive race for the the top four places, probably between you know maybe um, four to seven teams, and then you've got the three at the bottom, most likely over time, who would be the qualifiers, the sort of the the sides that snuck in by winning a, a domestic competition, for instance, who slog their way through maybe about 10 games uh, after their hopes of, of qualifying for the knockout stages had ended. And it's kind of, it feels very Formula One-ish in the sense of, right, just do more laps of the track because, you know, advertising exposure and, you know, the cameras will pick up the logos in your car for a little bit longer without actually thinking about, hang on, do you, people really want to watch the part of the race with all the uh, the lap cars in it? I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't, I just can't get on board with it. And I... Maybe it's a stepping stone idea, though, right? I mean, I suppose let's let's uh, hypothesise here and suggest that um, this sort of uh, tournament did occur. The teams, are, you know, had the fifteen permanent teams in there, who, yeah, presumably for a season or two would have far too many games, and as you, as you describe, would uh, certainly see some dead rubber football. But I would imagine that uh, in terms of uh, squad management, managers would pick uh, the uh, their their bigger or their better players for those midweek Europe European Super League games. Uh, they would see, you know, higher. Um, revenue probably coming from them. They would see a high number of viewers. Uh, it sounds like a stepping stone to just making that permanent, right? It's a Super League by stealth measure, in a way. Um, yeah. In the beginning, it presents itself really as, as Champions League reform because the argument in favour is, well, what's the difference? You know, the same teams always qualify for the Champions League as it is anyway. Uh, and there's some merit to that. But then you've got to you've got to wind it forward, and you've got to look ten, twenty, possibly thirty years into the future, and to the point where someone says, "Yeah, but hang on, uh, you know, the top ten teams in this twenty team competition, we're bringing in all the revenue. We should have our own thing, or you know, we should we should create a further layer of protection for ourselves because there's no limit to this. Football is a is becoming. Uh, I don't think it's contentious to say this. Football is a game driven and instructed by greed." And there will always be another level of greed to access. Um, so, yeah, I don't. And also, at what point does domestic football retain any allure? If you're if you're making all of your money in a European Super League, and all of the glamour is associated with the European Super League, and your recruiting structure is is basically pivoting around what your ambitions in that competition are why would you then say okay for the sake of a lesser revenue stream we will return ourselves to domestic football or you know even even in the beginning it's very difficult if you're if your passage into this competition is assured what is the motivation for you to be competitive domestically why are you not saving all of your best players for this midweek spectacle and saying to you know, saying that for, you know, Liverpool against Manchester United in the Premier League, okay, well, let's just play a, a kind of a second team or let's rest our, let's let's rest, you know, the, these are, I mean, these are secondary points. I, I understand that. But I think it's also important that people comprehend that this isn't just a everybody wins situation in which you just get lots and lots of really great games between good teams and famous teams with big fan bases. It's a, stuff boring. I, I would have thought so. I mean, I would have thought, Instead of being a greater, grander version of the Champions League, I think the spectacle is probably going to be, or would be, uh, more on the level of the International Champions Cup, the, Euro the pre-season tournament. Because eventually, the other conversations start happening. So, 
okay, well, where are we going to play our games? Yes, I know, you know, uh, Team X have always traditionally played in City Y, but why don't we play it in Shanghai? Just see how it goes. How about Dubai? There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine if that's what you want to do. But you have to understand that making those decisions changed the tone and the pitch of football as a competitive entity. It stops being Future regional. Seb, getting ahead of himself there. <laughs> It, you know, it's one of the few things in the game. Uh, I'm old and uh, embittered and a little bit jaded by football, but this can still stir my blood a little bit because sure. there's a how dare you aspect to it. Just because a club is successful and wealthy and able to club together with a lot of equally minded, similarly minded uh, peers, you don't get to, uh, to do this. It's like the Premier League situation all over again. Yeah, sorry. Uh the rant is the rant over is it over the rant is over i'm i've okay. exhausted my passion on this from the primary point no no but stop this is, this is what had it does your to bit me. now no <sighs> stop now okay alex i'm coming to you um let's return to the to the original uh the, the original point here that fifa have uh, made a statement saying anybody that would participate in such a league would be banned from participating in things as seb says like the world cup or the euros um how much of a barrier is this or how realistic is this as a stance do you think and and what might be the obstacles uh, to to enforcing such a ban um i don't think there would be any obstacles because those um organizations particularly fifa retain absolute control over those tournaments to the extent that let's not forget fifa can you know offer financial incentives and require tax breaks from the countries that are hosting those tournaments for the uh, sponsors that are operating in them that kind of stuff so fifa have enormous power when it comes to setting out not just who participates in the tournament but but the terms and conditions of everything around it don't sponsors have a pretty big power though or was it brazil when they changed they forced the change in rules so that they could allow alcohol drinking in the stadiums because there was a big sponsor that was an alcohol sponsor i mean like would sponsors not be horrified at the notion that the world cup would no longer involve some of the best players in the world yeah, completely. And and I think I think those those two elements combined, FIFA's ability to legislate what does and doesn't happen in their tournaments and the clout of sponsors saying, well, if we're not going to have the best players available. And let's be honest, we are talking about the best players, you know, that there are yeah. some very good players uh in in these sorts of teams that we're talking about that don't play for a nation that regularly qualifies for a World Cup, but the vast majority of them do. So you would be having a World Cup that would be completely stripped of its um, of its allure, of its competitiveness. So it's a bluff. It's one of those situations where they're going to, they'll, they'll they'll threaten it uh, in the hopes that it will uh, yeah, it's you know, throw off the planning. Yeah. I mean, my, my, my assumption would be that it's uh, and, you know, treading relatively carefully here, but it's it's a it's a flex by certain of those clubs to say you know we are in financial hardship at the moment because of circumstances beyond our control everybody understands that this is still in our back pocket and unless you're going to address this in a way that is favorable to us the biggest clubs then there are certain things that we can threaten to do that will and 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 FIFA have turned around and go okay well <laughs> threaten us then and this will be the repercussion so in that respect, I, I don't think it's worked. I, I do think there's one other interesting point to make very briefly, which is that um, the broadcasting mechanism for this is reported to be a Super League run 
uh, online streaming service, yeah. which I think is is one of the most. Uh, again, broadcasters will have a huge issue with this, um, but I also think that that from a fan's perspective, that's one of the things that I would be most worried about because fans are already expected to pay a huge amount of money to watch live football if they want to across all of the available platforms. And of course, once you have a situation where the clubs are controlling that themselves, it's like it's like a massive studio buying the biggest cinema chain and then being able to fix the prices for consumption of the material that they're providing. Unless they were smart about it. I mean, like actually, one of the things that cause, you know, would cause me concern in terms of the idea of, of this actually coming to, to pass is that if they are smart about uh, creating a, a streaming service, creating uh, something in which these football matches, hypothetical football matches, are more accessible to people at a more reasonable price. Uh, but, you know, as a result, you know, I, I think back to a, to a video that Tifo made with Nick Harris um, hypothesizing about a potential Prem flicks, for example, where everybody paid £10 a month uh, and the revenue was something like 10 times higher than it is now. I'm sure with all the biggest teams in the world, you'd be able to be able to earn an awful lot more money than than they currently are by charging individual customers less. I think that's the sort of thing that actually gets fans on board if they're I, smart I, about it. I understand if they're smart about it, but my my starting position on this would be one of cynicism, based on the fact that the entire kind of motivation for this is greed and hubris. So. You know they want lots more money, and they're sufficiently convinced of their own brilliance that they think people will just go along with it and 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 consume that stuff. And that, to me, suggests a a model where they're not going to be saying, you know, let's let's make this cost effective in a way that brings large numbers of fans on board. It's more a starting point of we're so great that people will want to pay for this, and if we fix a price at I don't know, 20 quid a month, 30 quid a month, whatever, people will pay for it because it's Man United against Bayern every other week. I probably would pay for it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, that's the end of part one. We'll be back in part two to discuss all of ours and your predictions, long and short term. And in fact, the first one to read here is the European Super League will start within five years by Phil Hogg. So thank you, Phil. Maybe you have preempted something there. Oh, maybe not. Uh, anyway, back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Okay, welcome to part two. It's the predictions part where we asked you to come up with lots of weird and fun and some normal uh, long and short term predictions as wild or bold as you desire uh, or, as, uh, or as straightforward as you like. Now we have loads, so thank you. Um, Alex and Seb and I have provided some also. We'll do our best to get through as many as quickly as possible. And we are going to start with a prediction from Luke Chapman. I like this one. Diogo Jota will force Roberto Firmino out of the Liverpool side. I'm going to come to you first, Alex, because we were actually talking about this this morning. Uh, we were indeed. Um, yes. Uh, I'm not specifically Diego, Diego Jota, but but the, the issues that Liverpool Luke are currently Chapman. having. Or Luke Chapman. Um, which, when I first saw it, I thought of Luke Freeman, um, who was sure. integral to my Bristol City football manager save. I'll always remember Luke Freeman. <laughs> uh, a player for whom I have enormous respect and affection. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think given Jota's hot streak when he started at Liverpool and the fact that he's been missing through injury, that is a significant problem for Liverpool, not just in terms of uh, the goal-scoring threat, but also an opportunity to refresh that front three. So whether he'll replace him or not, um, I think he's certainly going to become more of a an option once he's back to, to try and freshen that stuff up. If that happens, I would see Jota probably playing in a wide position and Salah playing through the middle. I mean, one of the things we were talking about this morning, Seb, was the was uh, Liverpool's chance creation, which is a little stodgy at the moment. Um, and one of the things that we have noticed in recent games is that as and when shots do present themselves, opportunities present themselves, more often than not, they do present themselves to Roberto Firmino, uh, who isn't converting in the way that one might hope. Now, I imagine uh, that this might be the thinking, uh, Luke Chapman's very own thinking about why uh, Diogo Jota, who has, as, as Alex said, been on a hot streak and scored, scored lots of nice goals uh, might replace him what do you think yeah it's certainly an interesting one I, I think the point with Firmino might be I mean you, you mentioned the sort of the, the chances that he's had lately and that might be because opposition managers are making a conscious decision to you know focus defensive resources on Salah Mane and allowing Firmino as not a spare man because that's not really the role he plays he's not he's not an outright center forward but he, he has a little bit more opportunity. Sorry, automatic updates was just prompting me there. The one thing that I couldn't turn off on my desktop. Um, I, I wonder also, though, whether Jota, when you, when you, have, when you have the start of a new club, when, when, you have a, when you start as well as he did at a new club, and then you get injured, the memory of what you were in that very short space of time is extremely rich. And I really like Diogo Jota. I, I think he's a lovely player, but I just wonder whether the idea of him has been embellished just a little bit by his actions. Are you stamping on the fantasy set? I, I, I am. I'm ruining it. I am. No, ruining, he's still, we're he's still angry from part one. So yeah, I'm not over it. a little while to simmer down. Exactly that. My heart Look, is it's not, not Diogo Jota's fault that you don't like a European Super League. I'm okay, leave him out of it. Him, no, I'm going to take it out on him. Okay, moving on then. Thanks, Luke Chapman. Uh, the next one is from uh, Aravind Nadadur. Uh, tactics will advance to the point that fullbacks will become regular goal scorers. Pwah! Pwah! Alex? Um, yeah, I mean, we've seen this a little bit with um, uh, Sheffield United last season um, with uh, Doherty and Stevens cutting inside. Uh, I, I'm not sure that... I think... I think fullbacks more as chance creators in the Trent Alexander-Arnold, Andy Robertson mould. Um, there's still an issue with fullbacks getting too far forwards um, and exposing teams uh, in the wide channels to counter-attacks, which is one of the ways that, that teams have thwarted sides like Liverpool. Um, I also think it's less likely unless people start reverting to something more like a kind of front two, because... Generally speaking, if if a side's got got three or is playing a four two three one, they do have attacking players occupying those wide areas. So unless there's going to be a lot of rotation, um, then I think that that the fullbacks aren't going to find the space to cut in wide. Their job is still primarily to create from those wide areas. But it is an interesting point, I think, in terms of fullbacks generally being one of these positions where we're seeing something that I think is a focus in modern football, which is rotation and players occupying roles rather than positions and being expected to be technically capable of, of filling in 
in central midfield or you know moving across to make a an additional central defender if the other fullback pushes up um, and fullbacks do seem to exemplify that versatility perhaps more than any other position at the moment but i probably draw the line at them becoming regular goal scorers okay uh i'm going to pick one of Seb's now, Seb's, Seb's own suggestion. Here's a bold one, Seb. Aston Villa to qualify yeah. for Europe by 2022. That's next year, by the way. I like the composition of their squad. It, it's got less to do with tactics and team selections, more to do with the kind of players they have at the club already, the resources they now have in uh, the background with their ownership, with their ownership duo. Uh, and also the profit and revenue they could potentially make from selling a couple of the players that are in the squad already and have shown themselves to be capable Premier League performance. Like, obviously, the first name on that list is Jack Grealish, but go elsewhere. Uh, Ollie Watkins, Douglas Louise, Matty Cash, uh, Bertrand Troy. Like, these are players who are young, uh, who are successful at the moment, are proven successful, who are potentially in the future enticing to other clubs. We, we know certainly that Grealish would command a very heavy uh, high fee if someone, um, if someone was um, committed to buying him. And so you nobody could, could see, afford him, I think. I think they're going to be going to keep at the him moment on the, basis they of can't. The, the, the economy. But at the moment they can't, Joe. And also, like, if you're Aston Villa, that's a good thing. You want Jack Grealish at your, at your club. And so you have mm. this best of both worlds situation where either you sell some of these players for an enormous profit and roll them into roll that money into squad development or you keep this team together you capitalize on becoming an established premier league club and mixed in with the ownership's resources you start to build something quite impressive and all of a sudden villa who were kind of fortunate to survive last season they're starting to look a little bit like wolves and probably deserve the same kind of same kind of optimism, I think. What's what? What league position, finishing position are we talking about here? I can never keep up with with the sort of lowest Europa League position because there's some domestic cup stuff too. It's sixth or seventh, depending on domestic cups. Possibly even as low right. as eight. So presu- that presumes that if uh, the domestic cups are won by teams who are already competing in Europe next season. Yeah, or or the Champions League and the Europa League as well, and there are lots of English teams in both. So yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, I, th- so I think it, it's, it's extremely feasible. plausible. Yeah, I, I think I think actually Villa almost. I mean, I get Seb's point about Wolves, but I'd say there's there's something slightly Leicesterish about them as well. Um, in that you've got you've got some interesting young English players there. You've also got a very very smart recruitment system. The last transfer window, you know, Villa. They spent a reasonable amount of money, but all of those acquisitions look to have been successful. Uh, and picking up players like Douglas Luiz, um, I think the window before, again, not a huge amount of money spent on somebody who's clearly very, very competent. Um, Martinez was a great signing. Cash was a great signing. So there's there's smart stuff happening behind the scenes as well as Dean Smith doing a, a good job tactically on the pitch. Okay, I like it, Seb. That's going in the winning pile. And it also leads me on to this next one uh, that's been sent in by CJ, who I think is the 
press secretary to Martin Sheen's presidency. Uh, long, but this is interesting, okay? Uh, lots of big clubs lose revenue, resulting in big money players not moving as much. This creates further pressure on the Bosman ruling, meaning more top-class players are leaving for free to get moves and uh, general contract lengths reduce as a result, which I think we're kind of seeing already a little bit. Uh, teams who invest well and scout well will become more successful. Teams like Leicester, Dortmund, Leverkusen and a select few in France. CJ doesn't include this, but I was also presumed to include, you know, teams like uh, uh, RB Salzburg, for example. Um, teams can't get the big money takeovers of old due to uh, new regulation and as a result the overall standard drops slightly and the Galactico spectacle fades yet we have a new generation of inconsistent yet well-built teams with proper financial planning Uh, Seb I'm going to come to you first Uh, just on the basis of uh, what Alex was saying there uh, Aston Villa seeming a little bit Leicester-y Leicester a very good example in fact included in the question by CJ do you see it coming to pass it's a big plan it's a big idea yeah, I do. It makes a lot of sense. I, I think um, I think it's also really rational if you if you if you plot the next sort of year to three years of the football world and what their environment's likely likely to look like. I think it's more than possible that it will reward sustainability in that way. I think it's more than likely. Do you know? Remember what the the last most expensive transfer fee was? Was it Neymar? Presumably that's never been broken, has it? Well, that's still the world record. Yeah. That's still the world record. Uh, before, the, I mean, the next one is uh, Mbappe, Coutinho. Yeah. We haven't had one for a Dembele while. Dembele is up there as well. Uh, so Pogba. 2019 saw uh, Joao Felix and Antoine Griezmann. Uh, obviously, for obvious reasons, 2020 doesn't doesn't include any. So it's, it's impossible to say what would have happened without the um, without the pandemic. Harry Harry Maguire is pretty high up the list too from from 2019. But there's not a huge number. Um, and it does feel a little bit, you know, we, we discuss transfers as we have done recently quite a lot. Uh, we talk about players like Paul Pogba. Uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of the sort of conversation around these uh, these situations relates to the context of contracts, doesn't it? And often, and more often, I feel like we're seeing players move just a year before their contract ends, uh, which perhaps is bringing prices down just a little bit. Um, so th- th- this 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 part of it actually makes quite a lot of sense to me. No, I mean, I, I, when we were planning for this, I, I thought that was that was a really, really astute set of observations, um, and yeah, yeah. and it does okay. it chimes with some of the things that we're seeing, um, and clubs. Put, I, the only the only sticking point for me is I think that sometimes clubs take a Dortmund, for example, they they recruit astutely with a view to selling on, and if the selling on market dries up then will there be perhaps less of an emphasis on uh, taking a punt on a Jude Bellingham at 17 because you know when yeah. he's 22 you can sell him for a huge amount of money. So I think, I think the there strategy. is a flip side to it. Yeah, possibly. Um, but again, I think if you're looking at if you're looking at picking up players in their early 20s from from cheaper leagues and and taking a chance on them that sort of thing might work well people will put more effort into scouting to to try and find uh players that are not necessarily undervalued but still relatively cheap that kind of thing so i think i think there's a lot of sense to it but i can see the flip side to that market slightly being an issue as well i wonder whether we're heading towards major reform of the loan market because i think going forward when when we talk about kind of team's reluctance to take any sort of financial risk i think that's right and i think that's especially true of players who already under big contracts at major clubs and i think over the next couple of years one of the likely results of that is to is is the creation of a situation where major clubs across europe are almost sharing players 
like a, I'm, I'm thinking of like a, a Douglas Louis situation or a Philip Coutinho. Um, and it, it becomes almost a little cartel of its own. I'm not sure what form it would take, but I wonder whether there would be have to be some kind of regulation because when a player is on a contract which is worth £250,000 a week, if he's loaned out, he's only really available to a group of about 10 other clubs in Europe. And yeah. that's something that um, you can imagine UEFA, FIFA potentially trying to curtail. Yeah, that's an interesting point, yeah. Okay, um, I've got one now. I wrote this down the other day when I was watching a football game. It says, Luke Shaw, um, Manchester United continue to buy left-backs until Luke Shaw is better than Lionel Messi. Just uh, <laughs> just based on his recent Nailed improvement. On. With Nailed a little bit of uh, competition. Um, here is a real one of mine. James Madison will be a coach in the future. Yeah, and I've, I've, I've picked this purely on the basis of his post-match interviews because uh, I saw a little bit of smarts, saw a bit of wit there. I'm sure, I think everybody did. We had a fun time watching him uh, talking to talking to the interviewer after the Chelsea game, for example, where he discussed the team's tactics. He discussed the weaknesses that they were exploiting. Uh, and my favourite bit was uh, there was this moment towards the end where the interviewer, I don't know, don't know his name, he he seemed to think, oh, I'm getting I'm getting an open interview here. Maybe I can sneak a little, you know, sneak sneak one in there. Maybe I can get something extra from him. He he seems to be a giving, willing, uh, you know, participant. Uh, so he asked something a little cheeky, and uh, James Madison, uh, in a very polite way, basically told him to fuck off. And I thought, oh, that's he is smart. He's smart. He sees what's happening there. He's read the subtext, and he's not falling for it. Um, and also, he's got you know hair, and uh, he seems popular. So I reckon probably be probably be a manager. Who wants to uh, who wants to say no? Nobody. I won't. I won't say no, but I don't think it's quite as unusual. The way the way he talks about the game and the detail in which he talks about the game, it's not as unusual as people think. If you if you talk to players when there isn't a TV camera stuck in their face, yeah, yeah, yeah. But th- but that there is a TV camera is the point, though. I know, but what we're describing is kind of knowledge and the capacity to understand understand the game. No, in ways that's that, not what I'm describing. I'm describing, describing those things, but 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 a person who is willing to do that in a scenario where they are told not to and can still hold their ground, like that's what a leader does. That's some, that's what somebody. Yeah, that's what somebody does who's uh, who's willing to kind of put their head above the parapet. That's that takes confidence, and uh, that's something you know. Uh, those sorts of uh, attributes. I, I expect most football players to have a very good knowledge of the game. Uh, not necessarily to a coaching standard, but you would have thought, you know, if you're a professional player playing, playing in the Premier League, you probably know quite a lot about football. Uh, it's more about those other uh, those other attributes that would enable you to become a leader of people. You know, uh, I, I, I don't know because for every for every manager who fits that description, who who sort of seems to exhibit that same trait, there's a lot of others who are just as reticent as the average 25 year old footballer who don't want to talk about tactics, who are very shy of expressing themselves in anything other than a formulate way in public. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do understand what you're getting at. I just, and I, I, maybe James Madison does become a very successful manager. I just, it feels like one of those, we all agree it was great and wonderful and we got, all got carried away with it moments. Not that it wasn't great and wonderful. You're but. a dream crusher. You are, Seb. You're crushing my dream. Alex, is he crushing my dreams? <laughs> um. <laughs> don't you crush them as well now. No, I, I suppose, I suppose the willingness to analyse his flaws and be open about having done so, I, I assume that's easier to do when you've rectified it and and in a positive way. Um, 
And I did think there was something quite interesting in that. Um, also, you're in charge, so I'm just going to say yes, it's a great Thank idea. You. And you're Thank you, Alex. certainly correct. Here's one of your great ideas, Alex. Uh, Union Berlin will qualify for Europe. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, this is only their second Bundesliga season ever. Um, but I think what's quite interesting is that they, are, they have a better XG differential than Wolfsburg, who are above them. Uh, Union are currently in sixth. Below them is Gladbach, um, and above them are Leverkusen, both of whom are two teams that I think can flatter to deceive. Uh, Gladbach is still in the Champions League, although they're against Man City. That might complicate things a little bit. Gladbach have also got a number of off-field issues currently, which people may or may not know about. Um, a bit of a scandal involving Briel and Bolo. Um, Alison Plie got banned for five games for spitting on somebody. So things aren't exactly happy and healthy around that club, uh, which is unfortunate because they're they're a great team with a, a fantastic coaching setup. But I can just see Union having a kind of resilience and a solidity that maybe a couple of the other teams that are in the, the hunt for Europe currently don't have. And things look relatively good for them, I would suggest, um, okay. to, to sneak into a Europa League place. Seb, you want to crush his dreams? No, no, I've I've done my share of dream crushing. I will stand off this one. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, would you would you feel inclined to crush my dreams, Seb, or do you think I'm correct? It's kind of a Friday. I just don't feel good about it ahead of a weekend. Like on a Monday morning, <laughs> like such when I'm a naturally Spurs a little fan. bit down. You're I such feel a like... Spurs fan, honestly. <laughs> right, you're banned from talking for the next two just minutes. Pessimism. Oh, I like this one. Uh, multiple people asked this one, so thank you for, for all your suggestions. Uh, Italy are going to win the European Championship. Alex? Um, I, who knows? I, I mean, I think this is going to be a very weird European Championship um, for obvious reasons. Um, uh, they, you know, they, they Serie A is itself resurgent at the moment. I think there are some very good teams there. It's a competitive league again. Um and there are a number of young Italian players, um, people like Tonali, uh, Locatelli, Chiesa, uh, Barella, you know, who are doing good and interesting things on a regular basis. Players where you go, you know? Yeah, I, I think, I think you know, Italy. Italy's always produced good, solid, tactical, defensive teams. But I think there's now some star quality, but also I think teams in Serie A are playing more expansive and attacking football whether that's what actually works in a tournament i don't really know and it's hard to know you know what i think the biggest question about the euros in general that makes predicting it so difficult is the state that the players will turn up in after this incredibly congested domestic season for for most top teams uh, are they going to be exhausted are they going to be you know it, it, will it benefit teams that have younger squads because those players are, are, are less tired? Will it benefit teams with older squads because there's a mental resilience and a canniness there? It's, I think it's incredibly difficult to predict. They're certainly among the contenders, but I don't think that anyone's nailed on to win it. Seb? I agree with the youth part of that. Like, Tonali's obviously an excellent player, Locatelli too. Um, I'm just... I, yeah, to me, it's going to come down to where the Euros is held. I think if you're, like Alex said... It's going to depend on what state people arrive in, what players you know, what players have been through um, prior to the tournament beginning. It's also the disruption and the oddity of the tournament. Like if you're, 
you know, if you were if you were holding it in England, then I think that you would that gives a an unusual advantage to England in the way that it wouldn't if there were crowds and and people because of the kind of the oddity of lockdown life. I don't know where we'll be by then. Similarly, um, I think you're going to have to look at how different football associations have managed their domestic seasons because a lot of the a lot um, a vast majority of that Italian squad play in Serie A. So. What has been the um, what has been the physical cost on those players? The mental cost too. Like it's the same in it's same in England, same in Germany, um, uh, same in Spain, I guess. So I think it's almost a kind of um, it's a it's a it's a it's a task for a survival team, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Um, which yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. In fact, the it's question quite a strange thing to say is... of an international tournament. I mean, it's quite no, it's you're quite, right. It's quite you're negative. Right. But I think I think it's, it's it's the uncertainty around it. I mean, the, the question of where it's going to be held is really really interesting. I think we're going to do hopefully do something on this, um, a video or a podcast at some point, um, perhaps towards the end of February. But as far as I'm aware, um, Germany have said that they won't host it, right? Because I think they've got a couple of tournaments coming up already. Um, there aren't like in terms of the the checklist of things that would be required, mainly related to facilities, right? So not just stadiums uh, that have over a certain capacity. Um, but uh, that are you know a certain distance from each other, but also uh, training facilities that are available and good enough for the international teams. The list is very small of countries that could support this at, at, at the drop of a hat. England is one of them. Yet I've spoken to various people who are convinced that it will not be in England uh, as a result of uh, well various different issues. One perhaps is the you know the rate of infection. Although a counter to that is that. Um, the vaccinations uh, are, I think, speaking uh, for Europe specifically, the UK is likely to vaccinate, you know, the majority of its re- residents quicker than some of, some of the other more established countries in, in Europe. Um, so maybe there's an opportunity by the summer, who knows, to get some fans into, into stadiums, if that's, the, if that's the case. There's also the political angle with, with Brexit. Um, so it's, it's really hard to say even where it's going to be, uh, because apart from that, you've got Spain maybe, and you've got Italy, maybe, and Russia, and I don't think it's going to Russia. So I, I wonder whether uh, I know this won't be a popular thing to say, but I just surely the most sensible way forward is just to cancel it. Because if if there isn't a country that um, is pinning its hopes on hosting and the kind of the financial benefits that come with it, so for instance, like a traditional World Cup situation where you know a country has built stadiums specifically for the occasion. You just think that there's going to be a World Cup at the end of next year. Uh, why don't ever? It, it just makes much more sense not to expose players to uh, a potential situation in this country where, like, I, I just can't believe that um, a significant number of people will have been vaccinated uh, by the first of June or the fourth of June or whatever the, the European. But it's like is. six million already, right? Yeah, but if you if you look at the kind of the the tiers of people and the kind of the priority list, like you know. Is it going to be? Um, is is that program going to be carried out in a way that allows a meaningful amount of fans to enter stadiums? I just can't. No, I, so, I, don't, but... I don't think so. But but the po- the point is that the, if it w- it will be furthest along here than anywhere else yeah. is the point. Well, that's, if there that's, was anywhere to do it, it would be England. True. 
But is that a sufficient argument to actually host it? Like, it's the best of a bad situation. I, I, I accept There's that. also I the just... stadiums. I mean, like, there's very, yeah. the point I was making is that there are very few other European countries that has already has the infrastructure. I mean, you think about London. We've got the Olympic Stadium. We've got the Emirates. We've got White Hart Lane. And we've got Wembley. Uh, all over, um, you know, they all have a, a huge amount of capacity. Twickenham, there's, if you uh, it, I guess. Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. You've got, there's like probably a couple in Scotland. There's even the Northeast, like... Um, I was talking to a journalist friend about this this morning who was saying that, you know, uh, Sunderland's training facility is probably better than Newcastle's. And so even though they're in League One, like that's, that is a facility that could be used uh, for a team I th- that's training. There's a, there's a useful model with the, um, the Rugby World Cup in 2015 when it was held here um, because the group stages were were based in a particular area. And so, you know, group, I can't remember what it was, but Group A played all of their games in Exeter, for example. And I think that that allows people to bubble up in a way that maybe they couldn't do. And obviously England is smaller than any of the other countries or, or Great Britain, if we're talking about potentially bringing in Scotland um, or Wales. But it, it's smaller than any of the other countries. So you minimise travel, you, you establish group stages in one particular area, and have them all play their games at the same stadium or two. Um, it feels more manageable in that regard um, than potentially any other. But I, it's very hard to disagree with Seb in terms of just, you know, is it is it worth it really? Um, Dream given, given the potential risks and the ex- well, yeah, yeah. But there's a difference don't between the saying that James Madison's to be not going to be a coach. And- no, no, I don't. Think I don't I, wants I, I, it to no one wants it. I'd love a European Championship to watch. Yeah, but I just, just want to watch the Euros. <laughs> I don't want I, it. I like no Euros, talk of cancelling. I don't like this. This is this is sure. bad. Okay. Well, we're cancelling it for what? For the for the more efficiency of the future. I don't care about the future. I want to watch the fucking Euros. I don't. I don't care about what happens next year. <laughs> cancel the Premier League. Cancel everything else. Cancel COVID. Just let me watch the Euros. You know, it's the Euros. It's the spectacle of, of football dragging itself towards various broadcasting payments. It's I'm cancelling so... you. I'm cancelling you. No, you're cancelled now. I'm a dream crusher. Uh, hold on. I'm cancelling you. I'm uncancelling you to answer this one. Uh, on this then. is one of yours, Seb. Defensive players will start changing sh- uh, shape, and then in brackets it said, Seb will explain. Yeah, no, it's just a theory I have about the, the way that the game is quite cyclical in the sense that we. Um, you know, for those who uh, pay attention to our output on the channel, we did a video a few weeks ago about the return of the target man. And I always believe that kind of the, the style of play, the style of play used in certain positions is reflective of trends within the game. So target men are good because, you know, they're a handy way of skipping a high press. And they're also a response to kind of um, the uh, primacy of the ball playing centre half, the kind of the the John Stones type, who is a little bit more fragile than you know his predecessor was twenty or thirty years ago, and I think eventually that will write itself. So you know, I'm, in, I'm not in the shape of Ruben Diaz, in a shape of a kind of not quite a Neil Ruddock, but a a greater emphasis on a tougher, like more physical type of centre half who can do simple things, but you know who has the the passing range to play like a, a raking diagonal. Possibly not in a kind of Virgil van Dyke way, but I think we'll we'll kind of the ratios will shift a little bit over the next five to ten years. Yeah. Alex, what do you think? Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I think it's why you see that the the most highly valued centre back now are the ones who can both play the pass and also are pretty physical. 
and strong players like Upper Makano, who we talked about in the last podcast, Van Dyke himself. Um, you know, there's there's a synthesis of qualities there. I, I do think that defensive fundamentals have been neglected slightly in the pursuit of, of having defenders that can play out from the back in certain teams. And obviously, because those teams tend to be better teams, they, they seem to set a trend that other teams would aspire to follow. Um, but I also think that there's still the vast majority of centre-backs are still pretty rugged and can't kick that well. So <laughs> I think it's skewed slightly. Okay, let's do a quick, a few quick-fire ones because we haven't got very much time left and then we'll finish with a normal one. So quick-fire means a yes or no from both of you and that's all. The first one is Brendan Rodgers to become Chelsea manager and win the Premier League next season from Callum Jr. Seb? No. Alex? No. Sorry, Callum. Uh, the next one is Emil Smith-Rowe will end the season with double figures in assists. That is from uh, Tangio Luo. Seb? If it includes all competitions, then yes. Hey, hey, Seb. Hey, I, 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 what did I, I say? I'm, I'm allowed no my caveat. No, no, hey, no, no, no. Look, we're wasting time now because you've broken the rules. Say yes. Yes. Alex? No. Ooh. I kind of want to linger. Uh, I really like this one because uh, not so much for... <laughs> I just really like the journey that this person's gone on. And I've forgotten to include their name, unfortunately. So uh, sorry about that. But uh, this person said, when Joe Gomez and Virgil van Dijk return from injury, Fabinho will stay at centre-back. This will then lead to Gomez being dropped, distributing... Uh, I think they've written distributing, but I think they mean disrupting his progress. Eventually, he will then become a mediocre centre-back and will move to a team like Crystal Palace or Newcastle. We don't need to talk about that one. I just wanted to read and then, it. Like, it his wife funny. will leave him and like his world will fall apart like that's, that sounds like that's where that's going it's like an evil you gotta say it with an evil laugh hey here's a good one from uh, Ahmed Al-Kili Hamas Rodriguez uh, will brackets hopefully have the most key passes in the league this season by volume he's not even in the top 10 currently oh that's not a good start he's 13th and he's a long way off the top uh, your top three are Jack Grealish Kevin De Bruyne and Bruno Fernandes Makes sense. Uh, Makes sense. What about per 90? 90? Uh, he is... B -b 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 -um. Hold on. Um, it's being slow and stupid. He's 11th. He's 11th per 90. And and of those, one, two, three, four, five, five players have played less than four games of those above him. So if we're talking per 90... No, I'm still going to say no. Right, so he's got shitloads of work be, to do. It's going to be Grealish or De Bruyne. Yeah, okay. Unless Hammers can, you know, pull it out of the bag somehow. Uh, the last one I want to ask an actual question here. Is, this is, again, lots of people asked for this one. Not all of them were quite this bold, but all vaguely positive. Uh, the US men's national team will at least play in the semi-finals of the 2026 World Cup at the US. Who wants to go? Well, I, I picked this myself before realising that oh. somebody else or many other people had said it. Obviously, it's being held there in 2026, which gives the massive advantage that, you know, Seb alluded to with the Euros as well. Um, I also think, you know, just a couple of players, they've got Stacks, Zach Steffen in goal, they've got Mark McKenzie, they've got Anthony Robinson, Dest in midfield, Brendan Aronson, Winston, Weston McKenney, Tyler Adams... Yunus Musa, like they're a really, really good young team. Um, and I think there's a huge amount to be excited about. MLS have got their young player development very on track to the extent that these 
these players are now being picked up by very good European clubs or clubs like with Mackenzie, he's gone to Genk, which is an excellent development club where your next step is to then, you know, a Premier League side or a Serie A side. So, uh, yeah, totally. I'm, I'm Hot very stuff, much question this. mark. Sorry? Hot stuff, question mark. I, what does that mean? <laughs> Said hot stuff. Hot stuff exclamation mark, Joe. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they've got Giovanni Rayner and Pulisic as well. I forgot that. Oh, that's not, yeah, that's good. That's good, man. I think we've got to end now because uh, this is this is not, just not gone the way I thought it would. Uh, but I hope everybody enjoyed today's episode. Listen, uh, update uh, in the coming a week i think as of february we're going to be changing the days that we uh, record and we'll be changing one release day for this podcast so that means the tuesday episode will still be out on a tuesday but we'll be recording it on a monday so we can actually talk about stuff that you know we're not recording before the weekend as we are currently and missing lots of the goals and the second episode of the week which at the moment is released on a thursday will be moved to a friday in order that we can record it on a thursday and talk about european football and those sorts of things and you know what basically whatever's happening we're not quite so far off the uh, the old drop so keep an eye out for that i think it'll be the first week of february that that change occurs um and uh, we'll be we'll be looking forward to uh, to doing that so uh, thank you to seb thank you joe and to you alex thanks joe and of course producer adonis thanks everyone We'll be back on Thursday with something uh, almost the same, but probably, you know, a little different, but mostly the same. Bye. Bye.